This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. For a number of weeks now, a brutal crackdown has been waged in the Chechen Republic against people suspected of being homosexual. The story was first exposed by the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta earlier this month. In their original report, they alleged that over 100 gay men were rounded up, held inside a secret prison and subjected to torture. Further and more in-depth reports have followed, with witness testimonies revealing horrifying and humiliating practices carried out in the ultra-conservative republic. This has drawn condemnation from the likes of the UN and a number of foreign governments, and Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister, Julie Bishop, has formally raised concerns with her Russian counterparts. In the face of this, though, Chechen officials, including the Republic's leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, have called the reports lies and not made any meaningful attempts to address or disrupt the violence. Tanya Lokshina is the Russian Program Director at Human Rights Watch, and she's one of a number of very committed individuals who've sought to find out more about the situation that's unfolding. She's also written a number of books on the social and political situation in Chechnya and the surrounding regions, and has won numerous awards for her work as well. And Tanya joins us today via Skype. Tanya, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. And so it seems a little bit tricky, at least from afar, to get really accurate and detailed reports about what exactly is going on in the Chechen Republic at the moment. Do we know at this stage just how many people have so far been targeted by this crackdown? Uh, What we knew is that the crackdown was launched towards the end of September. And since that time, dozens and dozens of people were rounded up by Chechen police officials on the suspicion of homosexuality. And all those individuals were dragged away to unlawful detention facilities. And there they were held in atrocious conditions and tortured, beaten brutally, electrocuted, humiliated in different manner and abused to the point where some of them told us that they felt suicidal. Uh, now, how many people altogether? Are there are new conclusive statistics, but it appears that over 100 persons have been subjected to those punitive detentions and torture. We interviewed several of the victims who fled Chechnya and are now in central Russia, and all those victims provided very detailed and consistent accounts to us. And we have no doubt that this information is indeed true and that these abuses have been happening. Now, Mr. Kadyrov, the head of the Chechen Republic, who's been ruling it ruthlessly like his own private fiefdom with the blessing of the Kremlin, is denying the allegations. But there is indeed a lot of credible evidence. And um, along with other key international organizations, we've been calling on Moscow to carry out an investigation and to first and foremost put a resolute end to this anti-gay purge. The situation is indeed quite devastating. Uh, The way we found out about the purge is that towards the second half of March, we started getting snippets of information from a range of different sources of ours, including some sources on the ground in Chechnya and in Chechen diaspora in a range of European countries. 
And for a while, we were just gathering information and we were trying to find a victim or a direct witness. Then Novaya Gazeta, Russia's leading independent newspaper, broke the story on the 1st of April. And following on their publication, we started getting numerous calls from journalists and international officials asking Human Rights Watch whether we had similar information and under the circumstances we were compelled to say well yes indeed we are still in the process of gathering data but we heard similar stories from a range of different sources and the number of the sources and the consistency of the stories make us believe that this purge is taking place. By now, of course, we interviewed quite a few victims and witnesses, and the stories that they're telling are just horrific. What is the reaction of the Kremlin? Well, just a couple of days after the initial publication by Novaya Gazeta, Vladimir Putin's press secretary commented on the issue, saying that Whilst the Kremlin was not aware of this situation, relevant media reports were disturbing and law enforcement agencies would look into them. That seemed like a positive sign of sorts, the Kremlin basically indicating to law enforcement and investigation agencies on federal level that reports about this anti-gay purge could not be ignored. But then... Mr. Putin's press secretary emphasized that it was up to the presumed victims to file official complaints Mm. and competent agencies would be looking into those complaints. Now, this particular approach is deeply flawed because in Chechnya, gay people are incredibly vulnerable. They are, in fact, caught between two fires Authorities persecute them on the one hand, but on the other hand, they also have their relatives to fear. And that, that's what I wanted to, to ask you about, because it's it's fairly well known that it's it's a very difficult life for someone who is same-sex attracted to live in Russia, but particularly in, in Chechnya. Is there anything that, that kind of led to or, or served as a catalyst for this particularly heavy-handed crackdown over the past number of months? You know, that's a very good question. Uh, If you want to know how exactly it started out, we do have the facts. Based on on victim testimonies, it appears that on the 22nd of February, a young man under influence of drugs was detained by police officials in Chechnya. And once they got their hands on his cell phone, they saw some, well, photographs and communications of intimate nature on his cell phone that left no doubt that he was indeed homosexual. Uh, This development was reported to a very high-level official in Chechnya who is conservative and was outraged and effectively sanctioned the purge and his sanction none found the support of Ramzan Kadyrov. At least that's how the situation was presented to us. Now, if I may speculate, I would say that among other things, Ramzan Kadyrov 
may have been using this campaign to consolidate his base of support in Chechnya as local society is conservative and homophobia is incredibly intense and rampant. Also, it goes without saying that he counted on full impunity for this anti-gay purge, first and foremost because he's been getting away with egregious rights, abuses and lawlessness for over a decade, uh, installing a tyranny in Chechnya and punishing even the mildest critics for any form of dissent. But in addition to that, As you said, gay people in Russia are discriminated against and government policies with regard to gay people are indeed such that someone like Kadyrov could have thought, you know, this is a perfect victim. Mm. These are second-class citizens, right? Mm. While the international outcry has been tremendous, And that's what actually made the Kremlin put the issue on the agenda. You may know that just now Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, met with Kadyrov. And uh, based on uh, uh, the official record of their conversation, they discussed very sedate issues such as agriculture, housing, economic development. And then in the middle of that conversation, suddenly Kadyrov said something along the lines of, and Mr. President, those reports about, you know, detentions, they are false. Mm. Now, Vladimir Putin did not comment on that, did not take it any further publicly, but the very fact that Kadyrov mentions it and it got reflected in the official record of the meeting actually indicates that they did discuss the situation. And possibly the international outcry has made Russia's president tell Kadyrov to stop or at least suspend the campaign. Mm, At least we hope so. Well, of course, publicly, as you alluded to earlier, Kadyrov has denied all these allegations and called them lies, and his spokesman has said that there are no gay people in Chechnya and suggested that if there were, they would have been effectively killed by their family. And and you alluded also to, I guess, the ultra-conservative nature of, of people in, in Chechnya and, and families being very much uh, anti-LGBT plus. Um, is, is it very widespread or, or common for families to kind of outcast or even kill members of their family for for being gay because that's been alluded to in some reports as well as something that may have happened as part of these latest purges all the honor killings are unfortunately still exercised in chechnya and having a homosexual in the family is viewed as tarnishing family honor which can't be cleansed through an honor killing. But uh, there is this one important factor that I cannot but emphasize. In fact, Chechen officials do their utmost to fool homophobia and to encourage honor killings. Some of the victims that we interviewed told us that when they were released after days of detention and torture to their families, 
the releases were accommodated in the following manner. They would be brought into a room with their family members already there, and police officials would force them to admit their sexual orientation to their family members, and then police officials would shame their family members for allowing that stain on the owner of the family, on the owner of the church and people, and when finally releasing their victims to the respective families, they would say, and you know what to do. You know how to take care of this. So what I'm trying to say that it's not only about rampant homophobia and conservative attitudes of the public in Chechnya. It's about the officials encouraging those vile practices. Mm. If you just tuned in, we are speaking with Tanya Lochner, the Russia Program Director at Human Rights Watch, all about the recent crackdown on homosexuals or people suspected of being homosexuals in Chechnya. And I want to talk a little bit, Tanya, about the, the newspaper that first ex- exposed these purges, Nevea Gazeta. It's been heavily criticised since the initial reports and threatened by both, uh, as I understand it, the, um, the government and Muslim clerics as well. And that the journalist who broke the story, Elena Milashina, as I understand it, is, has faced death threats, not just for this story, but for previous very brave reports that she's been part of as well. What sorts of dangers or or fears do journalists face who are uncovering these sorts of very sensitive issues in Chechnya currently? Yelena Miloshina, who broke the story, actually picked up her mantle from Anna Politkovskaya, Russia's star independent journalist who was killed in connection with the reporting, amazingly courageous reporting, including in abuses in Chechnya and other regions in the Northern Caucasus. When Anna was shot dead in her apartment building in Moscow by a contract killer over 10 years ago, Yelena effectively continued where she left off. She started reporting on Chechnya for Novaya Gazeta, and she has been relentless in exposing the abuses, in exposing enforced disappearances, abduction-style detentions, and torture in Chechnya. Uh, In recent years, she's been getting numerous threats for her Chechnya reporting. She was physically attacked, beaten up once, and uh, the beating was not investigated effectively. Uh, Helena has been getting very serious threats, and we are very worried about her security, but we are also worried for the safety of her other colleagues at Novaya Gazeta. As the editor-in-chief of Novaya Gazeta indicated a few days ago, the entire staff, of the newspaper are now at risk. They've been getting very serious threats from Chechen officials and uh, Chechen clerics who are also fully uh, affiliated with the Chechen establishment. And even though those threats are not overt, but are rather about the wrath of the Allah falling on their heads, 
When Chechen officials are talking about the wrath of Allah, it's very disturbing. And what about also, I mean, there's journalists on the one hand who are seeking to uncover the, the things that are taking place in Chechnya currently, but also, as I understand it, um, gay rights activists in or living or, or operating from other parts of Russia who are reaching out to people in Chechnya and trying to give them a safe haven. How readily and, and, and commonly is that happening since news of this purge broke? Uh, Russian LGBT network has been doing an amazing job in organizing evacuations for the victims of Kadyrov's anti-gay purge. They've been getting plane tickets and train tickets for people. They've been bringing those people out of Chechnya to other parts of Russia. They've been providing housing and different forms of assistance to them. Their work is truly incredible. The problem is, however, that those victims, they're not safe in Russia. Because as they put it themselves, as some of them told me in our interviews, Kadyrov has very long hands on the one hand, and then there are also their family members who could come after them because most of them were exposed to their families as homosexuals. So this situation is really, really disturbing. And we knew of many cases in recent years when individuals fled Uh, from Chechnya to other regions of Russia because they were under threat, including under threat of an honor killing, and eventually they would be found. They would be found by local police or security officials or they would be found by their own relatives. And uh, uh, the only way for them to find a safe haven at this point in time is for other governments to actually give them safe sanctuary to let them in. And another thing to point out, uh, Chechen common law, Chechen traditional law, the adults, indicates that honor killings can only be perpetrated by immediate family members, such as fathers or brothers, but... In recent years, under Kadyrov, it's been happening increasingly often that while immediate family would be supportive of a particular individual, some second cousin three times removed, who also happened to work for Kadyrov security agencies, would come forth and tell the immediate family, you're not man enough to protect the family owner, so I'm taking this upon myself. And that's what those victims whose families have shown themselves as supportive are particularly afraid of. Mm. And, I mean, Chechnya is a place that's experienced uh, a great level of, of conflict and feuds over many years, and different groups have been persecuted 
over that time. How does the climate of fear among people living in Chechnya, I guess particularly in this case, um, LGBT people living in Chechnya at present, compare to what you have seen and, and experienced there in your lifetime? Is the climate of fear heightened now to an extent that's, that's kind of more intense than you've seen before? Well, the climate of fear in Chechnya is absolutely overwhelming. People are effectively paralyzed by fear of retribution from the authorities. And like I said, LGBT people are particularly vulnerable because they're caught between the fear of the authorities and the fear of their own relatives. But your regular Chechen resident who suffered abuses by law enforcement officials is hardly likely to file an official complaint because Chechen authorities are infamous for their retaliation practices and everyone in Chechnya knows that if you complain, not only you get yourself into more trouble, but you also get your family members into trouble because local officials punish dissenting individuals by retaliating against their children, against their parents against their family members. This is a well-known punitive practice. And therefore, when the Kremlin spokesperson says rather flippantly, well, let the supposed victims come forth and file official complaints, it's not an appropriate suggestion because he knows full well what may happen to people who file official complaints. Uh, More than half a year ago, Human Rights Watch published a major report titled Like Walking a Minefield. And that report is focused on the vicious crackdown by Ramzan Kadyrov and his team against even the mildest critics of their policies. And when I'm saying critics, I do not mean specifically individuals who actually dare criticize Kadyrov personally and publicly. That's quite suicidal. But even those who simply make comments about mm, certain aspects of the situation in Chechnya, they're not satisfied with like corruption among local officials, social and economic problems are punished ruthlessly, are subjected to abduction-style detentions and forced disappearances, torture, and public humiliation. So expecting a victim of abuses, and especially an LGBT victim, to simply show up at a police station and file a complaint with his name and personal details is, frankly, next to impossible. And By saying that while victims should complain, uh, the Kremlin effectively gives uh, uh, investigation agencies a loophole. No complaint, no investigation, no complaint, no case. We are speaking with Tanya Lokshina, the Russia Program Director at Human Rights Watch, all about the purges against people suspected of being homosexuals in Chechnya currently. And um, before I let you go, Tanya, I want to ask about, I guess, what comes next. You alluded to the fact that a meeting between Kadyrov and Putin resulted in um, it being officially recorded that they had discussed the issue of this violence and and torture and um, imprisonment of people. How bad would it need to get 
get for there to be meaningful action or, or a great deal of pressure, I guess, internationally for the Kremlin to, to step in potentially and prevent this from happening or at least reduce the severity of it? Well, the fact that the issue was at least discussed is a sign of hope. And therefore, international pressure has to be maintained at the highest level to make sure that the Kremlin indeed follows the situation closely and puts an end to this anti-gay purge once and for all. Naturally, we've been calling on the Kremlin to ensure an effective investigation and accountability for perpetrators. At the same time, having worked in Chechnya and on Chechnya for many years, having documented egregious abuses perpetrated with almost absolute impunity, I think that the chances for a proper investigation and for justice for the victims of this purge are unfortunately rather slim, given Kadyrov's record of impunity, given the Kremlin's record of closing its eyes on terrible abuses in Chechnya. Mm. But at the same time, the least the Kremlin could do is to make sure that the purge stops now, straight away, and is not resumed. And I think that this expectation is fairly realistic. If international pressure is sustained, the likelihood of the Kremlin doing this is fairly high. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a very sad and, and difficult situation over there, Tanya. And I know since uh, the reports, these most recent reports have surfaced, um, I know people here in Australia have been very concerned about what's going on. And I'm immensely grateful for you uh, for joining us today on Triple R to share your insights. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Tanya Lokchner there, she's the Russia Program Director at Human Rights Watch. And to find more on that issue, you can head to the Human Rights Watch website where they have many articles and resources on the situation over in Chechnya currently. And uh, you would have heard over the past week that the Australian government plans to bring in reforms to strengthen Australian citizenship by putting what Turnbull says are Australian values at the heart of the process. If enacted, the reforms will involve six new requirements to obtain citizenship and the current Australian citizenship test will be revised. To talk more about this and help us get a better sense of what's behind the changes, we have Kerry Ryan here in the studio. Kerry's a lecturer in politics and history at Swinburne University of Technology and knows a thing or two about the citizenship test, having written a PhD on the topic. Welcome to Triple R, Kerry. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me. So uh, firstly, before we get into, I guess, what Turnbull's talking about with these proposed changes, why did you decide to um, to do a PhD on Australia's citizenship <laughs> test? <laughs> I had a background uh, in uh, linguistics or applied linguistics at Melbourne Uni and I was looking at, um, I was working in the area of language testing and when the citizenship test came around it looked a lot like a language test. It wasn't sort of promoted as a language test but that's pretty much what it was. So I, I was looking at it from a, um, a, a linguistics point of view. Ended up going over to uh, Swinburne to work with a, with a political scientist 
and uh, take a look at the political processes as well with the with the linguistics angle. Mm. Well, I mean, take us back to when it first did come into force. Why do we have a citizenship test? It came on the back of, well, simplistically, the, the Cronulla riots were a big factor. 2005 was an interesting year. We had the London bombings in uh, in July. There was a there was a Bali bombing in October, and the uh, and the um, Cronulla riots in December that year. It had been a fairly tumultuous decade, a start to 2000s, obviously, with uh, 2001, September 11, there was Madrid bombings. Europe were putting uh, in a lot of these tests at the time. Uh, there were a lot of them springing up in Europe before us. Uh, what was happening, in obviously, in, in Europe and the, with the breakup of the USSR and the, uh, in Yugoslavia, there was a lot of recalibration of sort of national identity going on. Uh, through the late 90s. So in 2000, there was a, it was a bit of a momentum. And then with 2001, September 11, John Howard was in, uh, in, in the States at the time. Um, in 2005, after that year, 2001 didn't really scare Australians as much as homegrown bombers, if you like, mm. in, the, in the London bombings in July. Uh, while it shocked us, but it didn't sort of really kick home with the um, with the politicians anyway. And then the then the Cronulla riots in two thousand um, and five in December. What happened then? John Howard sort of um, he knew he was in a bit of trouble electorally. He knew he was going to struggle. He, he had the incumbency problem. Uh, he needed a, a way, I think, to energise the base, if you like. And he'd been to the well before on. Um, on immigration. Children overboard, of course. Absolutely. That Got him out of the sort of the 2001 whole election that he might have been in with Kim Beasley. So it looked on, a, on, the, on the face of it, it was a bit of a sort of looked like a bit of a cynical attempt. But what happened was with the, with the Cronulla rights in, uh, on Australia Day with his Australia Day address in uh, early Jan, or obviously late Jan, sorry, in um, 2006, he remarked that there was no test of Australianness. And then uh, about a month later, Peter Costello gave a speech to the Sydney Institute where he talked about um, if, you, if you want Sharia law, you can get out. And then Andrew Robb, who was kind of the main driver or took, it, uh, took most of the credit for the test, if you like, mm. uh, in April of that year, gave a speech um, where he said, we need to have a good look at having a citizenship test. They released a discussion paper in September and on the back of that discussion paper, we have a test. They announced the test December 11, 2006, which is one year to the day of the Cronulla riot. So it had a bit touch of symbolism about it. And the test came into uh, being early, uh, the 1st of October, I think, 2007. Mm. It didn't help. Howard then, obviously, because he was thumped pretty much. Well, I was interested in uh, watching Turnbull's interview on, on 7.30 recently mm. where he was asked, um, you know, what's what's broken essentially, what problem are we trying to solve there? And if we look back to, to 2007 when the citizenship test was brought in, kind of the twilight of uh, John Howard's reign, was there mm. anything tangible that the government was trying to address with that or was it purely, in your view, motivated by, um, you know, trying to galvanise the base for his Re-election. I think it was a problem we didn't have. Uh, again, we're the most successful multicultural nation in the world, apparently, according to Howard at the time and according to Turnbull now, which he keeps saying. Um, you know, you can have that argument if you like, but, um, you know, and, and plenty of people will say that's actually true. Mm. Certainly by percentages, we do have a lot, uh, a, lot uh, a, fairly, a very high percentage of, um, 
multi, uh, multiculturalism is successful in Australia, should I say. But there, no, there weren't very many reasons why, in my opinion, as I said, I think it was a bit of a cynical grab at the time. And so, so what changes have we seen since then? Because the Labor government did, of course, retain the citizenship test when they eventually won government. They retained it. When, so the, first res, the first stats to come out of the test in January of 2008 indicated that humanitarian visa entrants were failing at a greater rate and quite a high rate. Um, so uh, Labor decided to revise the test, but they, they butchered the, the revision and made it harder, actually. They mm. took the test, which under Howard, you had to get 12 out of 20, 60%. Uh, the Labor revisions, um, they upped the pass mark to 75 and uh, made it that much harder. And it was very much um, a higher hurdle for um, humanitarian visa entrants. They were failing at even greater rates. And the, what they did with the first test, there were three compulsory questions. So people from English-speaking nations, by getting one wrong, could sort of fall over mm. and, uh, and fail a test. What happened when they um, revised it, when Labor revised it at 75%, they took away the compulsory question. So there were virtually no hurdles for people from English-speaking nations or uh, the highly educated and the only people that sort of um, were in trouble and in more trouble were the humanitarian visa entrants. So it was affecting the more vulnerable. Did, did they change the substance of the, the questions in, in the text? They did. They changed, uh, they took away, John Howard's version was a, a little bit romantic and a little, a little bit nostalgic. Well, we've heard the, about the, the myth of Don Bradman's the myth of the batting Don Bradman. average being in there. <laughs> yes. What, what they said about Bradman was that he was, I think it was uh, small and slight, though amazingly quick in his feet and battered like a machine or something, <laughs> played his shots like a machine. That was about all it said in, in Howard's version. Labor actually did put his fabled batting average in the materials, but they didn't test them. What they did was they separated some of the more romantic stuff, the history and the, the triumphalist sort of uh, stuff that Howard was putting in. And they, um, they, they sort of made a more... They cut it down to about 25 pages of the more sober stuff like Governor-General's role and mm. political, um, you know, voting and, and things that might have more of an argument that they actually have something to do with citizenship as opposed to the jingoistic stuff. And, I mean, what we've heard from the Turnbull government so far is that the citizenship test, um, which consists, as you've said, of, of 20 multiple-choice questions, is to be revamped to include um, reading, writing and, and listening components. At the moment, as I understand it, it's purely just a, a text-based test. Yep. Um, and also pose moral questions, so not just about the role of the, the Governor-General and how mm. many states there are in Australia and so yep. on, but questions around um, whether you agree with hitting a spouse and that sort yeah. of thing, and those types of um, domestic yep. questions that have a strong moral element to them. Have we seen that in the test previously, or is it a very new thing? It's been in some of the materials, um, but not necessarily uh, as test questions. What, um, what they're introducing or they're proposing to introduced now is two, two tests, basically. So there'll be a separate test. It'll be an off-the-shelf test. It'll be an IELTS test, the, the International English Language Testing System. So there'll be actually two ways to fail now. So they'll have, um, which, is a, which is a test that's used in, I think, the US, uh, no, Canada, I think the UK and New Zealand use it. And, um, we also use it. There is an academic version and a general version. I think the general version will probably be more likely to be used for immigration. And then there'll be, on the side, there'll be the other 20, 20 um, 
uh, item multi-choice test, which will be allegedly revamped to have more of these uh, value type questions. So what they're doing is they're, and what, what they don't really understand, and they never seem to have been, uh, any successive governments have never really got a grip on uh, language testing and what it takes to learn a language. It takes a long time. So what they're going to be doing by introducing an IELTS test as a separate test along with the multi-choice test, the IELTS test will basically, it's, it's very difficult for people to pass, particularly if you come from a, maybe an oral culture or you, you are illiterate when you arrive, as, uh, as may be the case with humanitarian visa entrance. So what they're doing is they're extending this period of four years uh, permanent residence. Mm. Currently it's, it's one. Gonna take, yeah, it's going to take ten for some people and they're never going to be able to pass this IELTS test. So what they're doing is year on year as they bring more uh, refugees in, they'll be building uh, a cohort of people, most vulnerable, that will have no say. So that's not a healthy democracy when you have a big group, a big growing group of people who have no say, no vote, basically. And it, it's kind of ironic in a way, isn't it? Because um, Turnbull and, and Dutton have talked about being part of the Australian community and proving mm. yourself to be part of the, the Australian Absolutely. community as very much part of the assessment process, so joining mm. clubs and so on. But if, if you're finding it much more difficult to become a citizen because you have significant yeah. language barriers and might struggle to find work as a result of that as mm. well, we've seen the changes to the 457 visas yeah. um, recently. So it seems like they're kind of asking people to do something that might be quite difficult for certain groups of people compared to others. Yeah, absolutely. You won't get an argument from me or from anyone probably in the, in the immigrants themselves that it's useful to learn English. I mean, they, they want to do this. Uh, of course they do. They know, you know, the pathway to, to getting on and getting jobs and all that sort of thing. So it, it is an interesting exclusion to include. It's, an, it's a very interesting take. Mm. Is the government taking lead from other countries around the world in these current proposed changes, do you think? Yes, very much so. We, we haven't invented anything. We've followed pretty much everywhere on this sort of thing. I think I noticed that uh, when, when they brought the test in, we modelled ours or we uh, designed a discussion paper on how we would model ours on the, on the US, the UK the Netherlands and I think Canada uh, and we've all sort of lurched back and forth between each other. The US is pretty, pretty um, fairly liberal in that you can take it in your own language. Um, uh, the US, uh, the, the civics component anyway. So the US has, has had it much longer than anybody else. The Dutch I notice are expanding the, uh, they are also in the process I think of making their residence seven years from five. I'm not sure what the Canadians are doing at the moment, but the Canadians followed us with their original um, language test, or no, their original test material uh, resource booklet was a fairly sober, like the Brits' first one, was a fairly sober life in life in Canada or a life in the UK type test, which uh, said it was, it was more a compendium of information on how to get along in society. Mm. John Howard introduced the war heroes, the sporting heroes, those sorts of Nobel laureates. Uh, and then the Brits and the Canadians followed us after we followed them with format and working it out. We, we introduced the sort of the more nationalistic sort of stuff. 
which, which is in, I had to look at some sample tests online yeah, right. over the past few days and I mean there are these questions of kind of a, I mean less so perhaps than originally in 2007 when it was brought in under Howard but there's questions about Australia's um, system of democracy and so on a little bit mm. about Australian history but very little at least in those sample test questions around our uh, Aboriginal history, the First Nations history of Australia. Is that included in the test? It's not. It, knowledge? You'll get flags, uh, the flag, the Torres Strait Islander flag and the uh, the Indigenous flag, uh, but or the Aboriginal Australian flag. The um, There is some information. It was watered down a little bit. John Hurst, who wrote the original um, the original text for the um, John Howard test, spoke a little bit about how John Howard sort of intervened in that process and watered down a, uh, a fair bit of John Hurst's text on uh, Aboriginal Australia. There is information that is printed there, but not so much in the way of testable material, mm. no. Well, um, it's all very interesting and great to have your insights into the history of the test and uh, what we might see. I think there's public consultations on these proposed changes until June the 1st and no doubt there'll be some legislation introduced to Parliament soon after then. Yeah, the public consultation, but just don't think it's going to be anything like a consultation. (laughs) It's cynical, isn't it? (laughs) It is a little cynical, but they've proven in the past that this is a done deal. I wouldn't be uh, holding my breath. Well, consultation is often just a a word to justify a government action that's preordained anyway. My colleague at Swinburne, Mike Leach, will tell us we'll be consultold. That's right. (laughs) Let's leave it at that. Thanks so much, Kerry. Uh, Thanks for coming to Triple R and uh, we'll wait and see. Cheers, Dylan. Thanks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.